as part of my efforts to shake up the Vision on Sound format a little bit, here's another item from the essay strand. This week, satire. Once upon a time, a little over 100,000 years ago, a cave dweller named Ugg picked up a few sticks, twigs and pigments and started painting on the wall of their cave. Later on, as their confidence grew, the other cave dwellers from the tribe would gather round and stare in wonder at the subtlety of Ugg's paintings. They would marvel at the paintings of bison, be astonished at the renditions of the shiny new spears and other implausible gadgets, and be amazed at the naked antics of their heroes as they raced across the savannah, brandishing their weapons in the direction of the large furry creatures that they thought of as where their next meal was coming from. That these had been rendered in glorious stonovision and that they could laugh at the jokes at the end of a long day's slaughtering was simply a bonus. Over time, Ugg got bolder and the paintings got funnier, especially when Ugg would draw amusing renditions of the head of the tribe going about the business of ordering the rest of them about, deciding which of them got food in their bellies and which of them were where in the great scheme of things. However, when a particularly funny painting showed that time when the head of the tribe made that ghastly tactical error and ended up face down in a pond, while several children of the tribe were trampled by a particularly large and tasty-looking bison, after which the surviving hunter-gatherers spent a chilly winter trying to remember how the fire sticks used to work, things got less amusing, and Ugg ended up with his head smashed open and providing a particularly virulent shade of crimson on a rather nicely prepared, freshly scrubbed painting surface. And when the tribe found Ugg mysteriously lying there, they simply declared that satire is dead and ambled sadly away without asking too many further questions. But satire wasn't dead. Thousands of years later, one of the ape descendants of this tribe would suggest that these cave dwellers weren't even from the same planet as him, but were the survivors of a crashed space arc from some other lost civilization that had managed to get rid of the most useless third of their population and send them off packing, which shows just how sophisticated satire can become if only you'll let it. But somehow, despite what happened to Ugg, satire survived. You'll probably be unsurprised to learn that the head of the tribe managed to prosper and thrive afterwards thanks to something of a cover-up amongst some of the larger cave dwellers, all of which was made possible with a few carefully distributed extra mammoth stakes, followed by a small war with the tribe from the next valley who dared to be slightly different, and often ended up as working as their slaves. However, the bitterness and resentment that the smaller, less well-fed cave dwellers and, of course, all those slaves felt towards this blatant abuse of power somehow survived, and whilst most of them vanished in the mists of natural selection, a few of them did manage to add their slightly skewed view of the world into the gene pool, and so satire staggered on. The left-side-faced people of Egypt would find a way to mock the right-side-faced folk of Egypt, and vice versa, in the stone carvings of the temples and pyramids. Some Romans, a particularly po-faced and self-important lot on the whole, would doodle in the margins of their scrolls about their discomfort about being sewn up into bags with wild animals and then find themselves sewn inside very similar bags. Later on, their surviving descendants, if they had any, might despair at the displays of decadence and wealth being flaunted whilst the barbarians were gathering at the gates, although often it wasn't to those displaying the decadence and wealth to whom they ought to have been aiming their barbs and bon mots at, as, in the end, it was those same barbarians themselves that came to rule the roost, and because their sense of humour wasn't particularly sophisticated, mostly revolving around beer-drinking contests, fart gags, and putting the heads of funny-looking strangers on vicious-looking spears, it could finally be agreed that satire was indeed dead. The dark ages that followed tended to involve people sitting around wondering how to make candles, trying to remember how they used to make those spears quite so vicious looking, and whether there might have actually been any useful information about such things in all those libraries that they'd ransacked and burnt. But satire wasn't dead, it was merely resting. 
Hundreds of years later, novice monks would continue the tradition of adding whimsical illustrations to the dry tomes that they were copying, just in order to break up the monotony, really. And whilst given the audiences who read these works it was hardly mainstream comedy, it did add a little brightness and raise the odd smile or two to the endless routines of prayers and self-denial. Sometimes the descendants of the po-faced and self-important lot who somehow still managed to find partners to breed with them despite this would take offence and find new and exciting detective fiction inspiring ways to poison anyone tempted to look at such hilarities. But that didn't stop the satirists, especially when outside in the street the humour mostly consisted of finding new and exciting ways to taunt and kill small furry animals or the ribaldry that came with a deftly unexpected dropping of a pair of tights the size of a codpiece or picking on some particular religious group or other to blame for the world's woes and whipping up a mob to beat them to death because being funny has rarely been a laughing matter for centuries, dare to mock the monarch and you could end up with your head on an ornately fashioned, vicious-looking spike, or becoming a particularly flammable centrepiece at a bonfire party. Even looking at somebody in a funny way might lead you to the local stocks or gallows tree. Satirists learn to keep their heads down, at least well below the arc of the swinging axe. They might maybe add a few risque elements into some backgrounds of particularly complicated works of art, or just scrawl some ribald verse on the occasional wall and hope to get away with it, or bury their barbs in the most ornate literary prose, in a time when getting a book published involved rooms full of scholars making their own pens, paper, inks and minds up about the value or otherwise of such art. This all changed with the invention of the printing press, of course, after which amusing pamphlets could be produced in bulk and anonymously, with most of the risk falling on whoever it was, locally, who happened to own a printing press. Satire has always walked hand in hand with new technologies, of course, as comedians always like to push the boundaries of what's possible with whatever medium comes to hand. Such developments, however, often mean that those who are being criticised in such pamphlets, or radio shows, or television programmes, you see, I knew I'd get there in the end, often went out of their way to either smash up the presses or, more often, try to control them by buying them up and making sure that nobody got to print the sort of defamatory nonsense that they didn't like to have to have admitted doing. Well, not in public, anyway. They'd still jolly along behind closed doors with their cronies, of course, and congratulate themselves on a scam well played, but never in public. For them, even after the jollities of the Restoration and the Age of Enlightenment took over from the Puritanism of the Commonwealth, it was all about the preservation of a lifestyle, a division of them and us, and they were always happiest when it came to preserving the us at the expense of the them, often with the willing cooperation of the them, as they aspired to join the us the Enlightenment, when it came, did ultimately benefit society in general, but such investigations were often only possible because of the whims of the privileged few who thought the entire world was their plaything, and often their researches were mostly about finding newer and more efficient ways to kill people, or at least to work them to death a little more profitably. We are seldom far away from the cave-dweller that lurks within each of us. In later years, rubber-faced comedians and their comic acquaintances would satirise several of these eras as evening entertainments, mostly from the point of view of the establishment, of course, throughout the 1980s, and these would indeed be held up as great examples of televisual comedy made during a golden age, whilst outside on the streets around them, the world as they knew it was being burned to the ground by members of that self-same establishment.
after the Industrial Revolution, incidentally the only revolution that the establishment ever heartily approved of, as they got to exploit more and more poor people in order to line their own pockets, things got terribly serious for a time and satire often had to hide behind the huge bushy beards of the great men of their time, as they liked to consider themselves in private. Often those beards were hiding huge beaming shit-eating grins as they got on with making all that wealth on the blood and the sweat of others, often with little regard for their well-being, and often without asking how they actually felt about being worked to death in the factories or on the plantations. Some people liked the inequalities of that particular era so very much that they made a mental note to stay right there, despite being born nearly a hundred years later, and ignore everything else that history brought along with it to change and improve things for everybody else. But the world was changing. The white heat of technology, coupled with the pursuit of knowledge, led to more and more scientific developments, often designed to make the lives of some a little easier, just as long as they didn't think too much about the lives of the people bringing them such things. The mighty organs of the newspaper industry were now available to all, and for the price of a penny or two, you could be told that everything in the world was lovely, and eventually, by investing some of your own hard-earned wages in some of the aspirational toys the factories were churning out, you could buy a toaster or a washing machine or a vacuum cleaner and put your feet up and listen to that newfangled wireless device as it blurted out soothing melodies and the kind of thinking that the establishment thought that you ought to be thinking. Radio and its later cousin television were both born out of the notion that the state understood that the people needed to be entertained, but that they also needed to be informed and educated, often into some approved form that the establishment heartily approved of, and as long as we didn't ask too many questions everything would be fine and the status quo would be maintained. The problem is that, despite it seeming impossible, other far darker and more sinister forces were at work in the world, and they understood how this controlling the thoughts of the people notion worked too, and this basically led to, well, war to the death. And whilst huge military campaigns often serve to stifle the thoughts of the individual in the face of utter obedience, they can also lead to a huge democratisation of society as the great and the good rub shoulders alongside the grim and the grubby. And for public service broadcasting, once all of those hostilities were over and the monstrous results of one point of view having total control over the message were realised, things could never be the same again. And once those with satirical minds were free of the shackles of military service, many of them ended up working in the music halls, theatres and recording studios of the country, and ended up sharing their peculiar, perhaps slightly offbeat and whimsical, points of view with the wider public, and a golden age of radio and television comedy, handcrafted by some of the finest writers ever to grace the medium, began. In some countries this was seen as a bad thing, and certain senators tried to find new enemies to blame for the world's ills. Equally, under increasing scrutiny of this brand new thing called television, a lot of the old order found that they didn't like the fact that it could show them up for what they were, expose their double-dealing ways, and generally topple them from their perches if the crisis happened to fit better than their face did. And comedy started to get increasingly bolder. The bright young things would emerge blinking into the daylight, having been cloistered for several years in the halls of learning, and realised that the fix was in, and decided that they felt like being masters of the world for a bit themselves, and that maybe, just maybe, the pomposity of the establishment was there for the pricking. And so they pricked it. And realising that there was a whole untapped medium out there, they eventually found their way beyond the fringes of society and started making television programmes that were deliberately intended to mock and mash up the establishment, often by using their own words against them and playing them at their own game. 
and of course eager to keep hold of their weakening grip on what they liked to think of as control, sometimes the establishment would lash back and stir up the public to question whether a comic performer like Willie Rushton taking off the Prime Minister in a high-profile television programme was wholly appropriate viewing for family evening entertainment within the comfort of people's own hovels, and so began the slow drip-feeding of the sense in the corridors of power that this public broadcasting thing was getting a little bit out of hand and they'd better do something to get it back in line, and with a little help from their pals who owned the printing presses, and with a lot of help from the bloody them that seemed to be becoming increasingly restless, they started to set about bringing back control, little by little, year by year. Sometimes they would even call an election just to get a show taken off the air, in case people saying bad things about the government might possibly affect the outcome, if you can imagine such a thing. Granted, a lot of TW3 looks bloody awful nowadays, but when it was sharp, it was very sharp indeed. And given what we know now about what people see on comedy shows and how that can change how candidates, both good and bad, are generally perceived, you can see what they were running scared from. But stifling the year that was only led to more of that sort of thing. As 60s icons like not only Peter Cook but also David Frost would introduce us to the honest truths of the class system in iconic sketches that help shape the thoughts and perceptions of generations perhaps not previously aware that other people shared the same sense of the utter injustice of it all like they did. Later generations of highly educated minds would also not join in with the satire boom, and later still, rubber-faced latex puppets would do their level best to tear at the very heart of the establishment, continuing very much in the tradition of the artists of a couple of centuries earlier. But, and it truly is a big but, big enough to cram in a dozen cabinet ministers and still leave room for a couple of political correspondents to squeeze through and get even further up than any of them, but this is where it gets complicated because satire started to get democratised. Oh, not in the sense where you stagger out on a cold day if you can be bothered to and scrawl an X inside the box next to the name who's promised to give you the most for the least and convince yourself that you're free because they just get on with the job of fleecing everybody else but pretty much leaving you alone. No, not that, but the sort of democratised where it suddenly became apparent that anybody could do this, not just those who had actually benefited from those educations that had made everything possible and opened up so many doors with the usual grace that unconscious privilege often does. Nowadays, anyone who felt like doing so only had to be able to string a few carefully chosen words together and actually be bothered doing so, and they could share their opinion with the entire world, even if they didn't spend a few years lurking around just the sorts of establishments the establishment might approve of. And several of these people went on to have highly successful programmes designed around them that actually started to try to tell truth to power and reveal the duplicity and shenanigans that were going on in our names behind the scenes, and without the news outlets feeling it worth mentioning to those who did stand out and mark their X in a box, or even those who didn't. This was new, this was good, this was dangerous, and the interesting thing was that despite the fact that such opportunities were open to anyone from any background and with any particular standpoint or vicious looking axe to grind, the really funny ones were always the ones that most agreed with the point of view held by the viewer or listener. Haha, -ha, they're funny because that's what I think too. So those without any sense of humour, or those who actually became the target of that humour, if only by association, or those that didn't like the fact that somebody out there had actually noticed what they'd been up to, really didn't like this. And at the very earliest opportunity, in the name of some warped sense of truth, justice, balance and fair play, pulled the plug as soon as they were able. Satire is dead. But of course it never is, not really. You can't stifle thought and imagination any more than you can knit snow.
there always has to be a sense of balance and outlet for all of that frustration and anger and sense of injustice because if there isn't, no matter what side of the fence your own opinion happens to be sitting on, then we're not that far from the humourless, po-faced, self-important, torch-wielding mobs that used to put heads on spikes or, once upon a long ago, burnt so-called witches because they looked at them a bit funny and bashed the most forward-thinking cave dweller of their generation and stained the walls with their blood because they didn't like what they were suggesting. Good night. Thank you.